Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's Son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman, who was labeled unable to conceive, is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be with me, just as you have said. Then the angel left her. And death's dark shadows to flight. Don't be afraid, the angel Gabriel says to a 13 to 15 year old girl, God is honoring you. This affirmation is intended to clarify Gabriel's even weirder opening statement to Mary. Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. But none of this, the visitation of the angel, the description of favor, the promise of divine presence, none of this makes sense to Mary. She's a young woman, practically still a kid, in an admittedly patriarchal society. What would God want with her? Commentators note the line, the Lord is with you, is pregnant with meaning, pun intended. It's used throughout the Old Testament for people who are chosen for a special task. It's not just well wishes. It's not just part of a normal greeting. It's a statement to prepare one for what is about to unfold. So it's no wonder Mary is so confused or perplexed and probably also frightened. Gabriel didn't help matters as he continues with his bizarre announcement. Look, he says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will rule over Jacob's house forever and there will be no end to his kingdom. Now let's back up for a bit and focus on the first bit. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Mary is perceptive, perhaps more so than most modern readers. We are way too familiar with this passage. We have too easily accepted what's going on here as anything resembling normal. We've seen too many Christmas pageants. We've heard Linus rehearse the Christmas story one too many times. We've forgotten, I think, how strange all of this is. So Mary does the work for us and asks the most obvious question, which I will gladly put into the parlance of our time. <clears throat> uh, uh, what? What? A kid? How, how's that going to work? 
Again, Gabriel is not overly helpful, at least not in a way that clarifies anything for us. He says, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's Son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who was labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. Nothing, Gabriel says, nothing is impossible for God. There's a lot to unpack here in this statement. The the text is practically begging for, at the very least, a brief discourse on the miraculous and how we should interpret the complete absurdity of, one, a postmenopausal woman such as Elizabeth having a baby in her old age, and two, an eighth-grade virgin becoming pregnant by the Holy Spirit. If we've become too familiar with Mary's story, I'm guessing that Elizabeth's impossible pregnancy isn't even a blip on the radar. But they are both miraculous in their own right. And as such, they both provide a litmus test of sorts for a number of issues. Our dear friend N.T. Wright helpfully summarizes the most pertinent of these issues for us in an essay that he wrote uh, in a book called the meaning of Jesus. He says, if you believe in miracles, you believe in Jesus's miraculous birth. And if you don't, well, you don't. Likewise, if you believe the Bible is true, you will believe the birth stories. And if you don't, well, you won't. Now, this is where I've gotten myself into a little bit of trouble in the past. So let me tread carefully here as I unpack this. I've had the privilege to preach this story a few times over the years, and and honestly, I think the question, did it happen, the historical question, is one of the least interesting, yet it's the one that always and understandably comes to the fore of our thinking. It's a bizarre story. If you'd like to pick this up with me over coffee, please, let's do it. I would love to chat about this. But... Honestly, I kind of feel like this is our M.O. whenever we read a story of the miraculous in the Bible. Think about it. The Exodus, Jonah and the big fish, any of Jesus's miracles. We're usually overwhelmed with questions of how and when and why and what's the likelihood and is there proof? And as a result, we get sidetracked and we often miss the point that's being raised by the story. Again, let me defer to N.T. Wright, who puts this familiar story of Mary and Gabriel and many of the questions that we typically ask into perspective. He writes, and this is a long passage, so stick with me. He writes, Jesus's birth usually gets far more attention than its role in the New Testament warrants. Christmas looms large in our culture, outshining even Easter in the popular mind. Yet without Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, we would know nothing about it. Paul's gospel includes Jesus's Davidic descent, but apart from that, his gospel could exist without mention of Jesus's birth. One can be justified by faith without any knowledge of this story. Likewise, John's wonderful theological edifice has no need of the stories of the birth of Jesus. God's glory is revealed not in the manger, but on the cross. Yet try to express any New Testament theology without Jesus' death and resurrection, and you will find it cannot be done. Wright continues, 
If the first two chapters of Matthew and the first two chapters of Luke had never existed, I don't suppose that my own Christian faith or that of the church to which I belong would have been very different. But since they do, since these passages exist, since we have them, and since, he argues, for quite other reasons, I have come to believe that the God of Israel, the world's creator, was personally and fully revealed in and as Jesus of Nazareth. Then, for those reasons, I hold open my historical judgment and say, if that's what God deemed appropriate, who am I to object? I think there's great wisdom here. You, of course, are free to disagree, but this line that Wright inserts, if that's what God deemed appropriate, if the virgin birth is what God deemed appropriate, who am I to object? I can get on board with this. Wright is absolutely correct in pointing out that the birth stories are only a minor theme throughout the New Testament. They only appear in two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke, and really nowhere else. So the question that we should be asking from these stories is what is Matthew and what is Luke doing? They both clearly are attempting to communicate something to us as as readers, and it's not just, hey, hey, look at this miraculous thing that happened. Certainly, we can say this much. In Luke's story, Mary is a virgin. She's not yet married. She's contractually obligated. She's betrothed, but she has not known a man, and having a child is... It's, it's improbable at this time. And this detail is really important for the unfolding of the story, but it doesn't stand by itself as a novelty of, of some sort. Instead, this story is linked. In Luke's gospel, Mary's story is wonderfully and closely linked to the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, which we explored last week. I won't presume that you remember it, so here's just a quick review of this story. Zechariah is an old priest. He's one of approximately 18,000 priests in Israel at this time. The priests are divided into 24 groups, each group serving two weeks per year. During this time, priests are called by lot to administer the incense offering both before the morning sacrifice and after the evening sacrifice. And this was a massive honor if you were called to do this. It only happens once in a priest's lifetime, and it allows the priest access to the holy place, which is as close as they will ever get to God's presence. Zechariah also is married to Elizabeth. And she is old, too. They have no children. But according to Luke, they are both righteous. And here's the problem. Elizabeth is barren or infertile. Remember, this was a woman problem in the ancient Jewish culture. This doesn't really fit with Israelite theology, and it would have been a mark of shame on both of them. In the story, Zechariah is called to perform the, the incense offering, and while he's in the holy place, he is visited by Gabriel, who comes bringing news that he and Elizabeth will have a son and that they are to call him John. Zechariah doesn't believe the angel because they're so old. Their time has passed. So in response, the angel says that Zechariah will be mute until the baby is born. Now, fast forward six months later, and we meet Mary. The story begins with a clear link to what has preceded it. Luke writes, when Elizabeth was six months pregnant, this is the hook linking these two stories together, or at least one of the hooks. 
And then to make it even more obvious, Luke basically repeats the same structure that he adopts in the previous story. And when you compare these two together, there's so much that that goes together. He was troubled. She was troubled. The angel said to him, the angel said to her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're going to bear a son and you will name him John. You will name him Jesus. He will be great. We see all of these similarities of structure and vocabulary and uh, just the literary devices that Luke is using to bring these two stories together. It's all so similar, which is the point, because it sets up this key difference. Whereas Zechariah did not believe Gabriel's message, Mary responded to the most ludicrous news she's ever heard in the most ludicrous way that you've ever heard. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Now, this calls for some context because I'm sure that we've largely misread this line in the past. And this is because when we read the Bible, we intuitively supply tone into these uh, citations. We also do this when we get text messages. I know, I know that you've looked at a text message and sounded it out in a few different ways, puzzling over if what you just received is super snarky or just normal correspondence. In our mind, something simple like, what does that mean, can be read as, well, what does that mean? Or the letter K, right? It's the worst. It's the most passive-aggressive thing ever, at least according to some people. Uh, But if the person texting the letter K is over the age of 40 or maybe under the age of 16, it probably isn't passive-aggressive. Now think about Mary for a second. What image did you have of her prior to my reminding us that she's a junior high student? She's super quiet. She's really holy. She's a porcelain face devoid of all expression. Maybe you think that Mary is akin to a robot, at least in the Christmas story. I tend to make Mary the most pious person in the room And here, at least, sometimes I border on envisioning her as one who has had a lobotomy. Second question, how would you have placed these words of hers on her lips? I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said in your most pious reading. When we do all this reading in, though, I think that we miss the gravity of her words, and and maybe we miss the meaning, too. Scott McKnight is a New Testament scholar. We refer to him quite often. He writes, Mary's may it be or let it be was an act of courageous faith. We take Mary's act of consenting to the angel's words for granted. We need to consider her context, he writes, what it must have been like for a first century teenage Jewish woman to trust God and what it would have been like for her to tell this conception story to her family and then to Joseph, and then to others in public. And when we consider this context, we will come into touch with Mary's real faith. This is a faith that that would have acknowledged a a number of things, like she would have acknowledged being labeled as an adulteress. If Joseph desired, she would have had to acknowledge the possibility that she would experience a public trial, and if found guilty, a, a death sentence. 
At the very least, she would endure a public shaming because people aren't going to believe this. Her yes to God's plan, at least in her mind, it would have also jeopardized her engagement, which for a woman in the first century was a big deal. To be divorced would have left her vulnerable and susceptible to poverty. This would also affect her child, little Jesus, not just in damaging the security that comes with a supportive family system, but Mary's yes would also contribute to his being ostracized by other children, to the constant rumors about his birth and about his dad, and about his mom. Again, McKnight writes, no sane, intelligent, pious, young Jewish woman, and Mary was all of these things and more, could avoid thinking these very things about herself, about Jesus, and about Joseph. And yet, as all of this swirls in her mind between the angel's announcement and what she responds she comes to, I am the Lord's servant, let it be with me just as you have said. Somehow, for me at least, the tone changes when I read these words now in light of all of her circumstances. The statement is, it's no less pious, but it's much more precocious, it's, it's edgier. This is the wrong word, but it's much more rebellious, it's more determined, it's it's fiercer, it's bolder, it's, it's incredible, really, and it's practically fearless. This story is an important one. It introduces Jesus to the world. It sets him up to be the Savior, to be the agent through whom God forgives sins, which is linked to the idea of God leading Israel out of exile, finally and climactically. Is the agent through whom, to use Mary's words later from the Magnificat, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, through whom God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. There's an edge to this prayer and to these beliefs that Mary holds. Jesus initiates the great reversal of the entire order of the world. He's greater than John, which is a big theme in these stories. He is the one to come, the one who will restore the world to how it should be. He will change everything. Mary's role in this story, it cannot be Reduced. Scholars would refer to this as Mary's role in salvation history. It cannot be reduced, but without minimizing her uniqueness. I think it's important to admit that God is still calling people to be like Mary. God is still asking people to take risks, to believe despite the odds, to count the cost and say, I'm here and I'm willing. If we truly believe the story of Jesus, if we truly believe that he has revolutionized the world, then why are we still so afraid? 14-year-old Mary provides us with a, with a potent counterexample of this. Not only does she stand in contrast to Zechariah and his lack of faith, these two stories that are pitted against one another, but she also stands in contrast to many of us. So the prayer, the hope perhaps, is may we be more like her and may we learn to say, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. 
as we contemplate this story of, of Mary and her unlikely inclusion into the story of the redemption of the world. May we too be bold. May we too take risks. And may we too follow God wherever he leads us.